Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. The rock band Blood, Sweat, and Tears at one time was the most popular band in the United States and maybe even the world. They were known for such hits as Spinning Wheel, You've Made Me So Very Happy, and When I Die. They headlined the legendary Woodstock Music Festival in 1969. They won multiple Grammy Awards. In fact, in 1970, they won Album of the Year, beating out the Beatles' Abbey Road. But in this remarkable documentary film, What the Hell Happened to Blood, Sweat, and Tears, director John Scheinfeld shines a light on this incredible, never-before-told story about this band that became unknowingly embroiled in a political rat's nest involving the United States State Department, the Richard Nixon White House, and a controversial concert tour of Yugoslavia, Romania, and Poland. It is truly a story that you could not have made up. We're joined today by friend of the show, John Scheinfeld, who was here previously for his documentary film, Chasing Train, and joining us again, John Scheinfeld. John, welcome back to Film School Radio. This is yeah. just a remarkable story. I mean, you, you know, once again, a story you couldn't make up, right? I mean, so... so it, it's, it's really true. Um, you know, that's the first thing, Mike, that uh, I look at when I'm deciding whether I want to take on a film or not is what's the story? Yeah. Is the story strong enough, compelling enough? And yeah. uh, absolutely, this one was It was just so different. You know, it's it's so different from what you would expect a, a rock band to go through. And But then the second challenge always is do we have enough uh, audiovisual material uh, to tell the story properly? And... <laughs> Uh, when Bobby Columbi, who's the uh, leader of uh, the band leader of Blood, Sweat and Tears, uh, first told me about the general outline of this story, he, he happened to mention or dropped into conversation, I should say, uh, that the film crew went along with him on this Iron Curtain tour. And like I sat up straight in my chair and was like, wait a minute, there's film on this. Uh, and so that sort of set us off looking for the film, which. We know they shot 65 hours of footage, but that all disappeared. The raw footage is gone. But we did find a one-hour edit that was made for TV but never shown. And that ends up forming the foundation of our film. So we were really glad to, to find that. But great story, great film, and, and here we are talking again. Let's talk about, for people who are not old enough or may have heard the name Blood, Sweat, and Tears, not familiar with them, um, what would be a good way to describe how they started and and who they are. Blood, Sweat & Tears was the first band to blend jazz and rock in a commercially successful formula. Uh, they started in 1967, um, put out an album called Child is Father to the Man, which is a, a terrific album. Uh, the singer and lead songwriter on that was a guy named Al Cooper, who's sort of a rock and roll legend. But he's not the strongest singer, the band members felt. Uh, Al ended up leaving the band, and they replaced him with a tremendous singer called David Clayton Thomas. They put out an album called Blood, Sweat, and Tears in 1969, and it just exploded on the scene. 
The album was one of the biggest selling albums at that time ever. And they had uh, three, almost four, uh, number two singles that came out of it. It's a very popular album. And in 1970, they were one of the biggest bands in the world. They had just one album of the year, beating out the Beatles' Abbey Road. And uh, you couldn't be any bigger than Blood, Sweat and Tears was. Uh, and then something happened. And we tell the story of what happened to them, which is perhaps why some people today may not be as familiar with the band as they should be. In some ways, Blood, Sweat and Tears was a bit star-crossed, right? You mentioned their first album. Um, I remember Al Cooper. I remember what an influential musician he was. I remember really enjoying him. He played with Dylan. He was he was the real deal. And he was a part of this first album that you just described, and which I heard a long, long time ago. I heard it, but it was the second album that was the one that stuck with me and with so many other people. But is it fair to say the band in in many ways was star-crossed? You know, Mike, that's a, a loaded term, star-crossed. Okay. Um, well, let me be, let me let me refine the question a little bit. And yeah, that is, sure. They were let's see a victim. Often bad timing would play into <laughs> their fut into their fate and future. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, like many bands, uh, good and bad things happen to Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Uh, some of their own making, uh, some not. But I think what what characterized them at this time is just such great success. And you know what this is like. You've seen this on the scene quite a bit. Today we call it uh, capturing the zeitgeist, that they're just right in the moment and everything is going right for them. The reviews are great. People are showing up for the concerts. They're in demand for TV shows. All of that was happening for Blood, Sweat and Tears at this point. They really had their moment. But then they got caught up in this political maelstrom, not of their own making. Even that one thing just kind of threw off the moment and things were never the same for them again. So, yes, there were some other uh, aspects of their career that um, losing Al, playing Las Vegas. There are some of these other things, uh, uh, being at Woodstock and not being in the movie, which we can talk about if you like. But the primary thing of what the hell happened to Blood, Sweat and Tears was them becoming the first American rock band to perform behind the Iron Curtain. And when they came home, bad stuff happened. To kind of backtrack on um, the good things, in, in addition to getting Michael Clayton Thomas as their lead singer, so and having Clive Davis in your corner certainly was was something that was a tremendous benefit to them. They did have the mo their moments, and they and they did take advantage of it. And also, they were really good musicians. They were great musicians, all very, very trained and educated. And I think that's what separated them from a lot of other bands at the time in general. But when you're dealing with a, a new genre, if you will, and Clyde Davis says it well in the film, that this was a new sound, blending a big, powerful horn section with a rock and roll rhythm section really made a difference. Uh, the fact that they were such good musicians, I think, really allowed them to just explode on the scene with this new sound. There have been other bands that around that time were experimenting with it. Thinking back on that era, Tower of Power was one that was in that same vein, but they really, they were really able to blend 
the rock and and that soulful sound that you got from a horn section. I mean, I think of Mad Dogs and Englishmen, Leon Russell. Those guys were all they really embraced that and were really really had some incredible um, horn sections that were would be the. I mean, just so many bands along the way have picked up on that and made that uh, a truly a just very powerful sound. But they were the first to really make it work, in my opinion. I agree. Blood, Sweat and Tears was the first. And anybody that came after, like Tower of Power, uh, like, like the Mad Dogs and Englishmen, like Chicago, yeah, um, they came after Blood, Sweat and Tears. Blood, Sweat and Tears really set uh, the stage for uh, the horn-based bands that, that came after. But on top of it, I think, Mike, they picked great material. And those songs just jumped out at you. It wasn't just using horns. It was using them in service of some great songs. And I think that's why the albums sold so well. And that's why they had those big hit singles. Um, I want to remind our listeners, we're talking with John Scheinfeld, an amazing documentary film. Again, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, a story you couldn't make up. The documentary is called What the Hell Happened to Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And it is coming out. It's being released through, I believe, Obrama-Rama. It will be here in Los Angeles beginning on March 31st. Uh, we we open in Los Angeles at the Lemley uh, Monica Film Center on the 31st of March, and we're there for at least a week if uh, your listeners come and more audience people show up. Uh, but then we're doing a series of uh, one-night-onlys. We're doing a, an Encino night, uh, North Hollywood, Glendale, and Claremont, and I'm hoping we're going to do some down in Orange County as well. Well, you can go to bstdoc.com. It has all of that information uh, available. You, as you said, you have one night only, right? Claremont, Encino, Glendale, Berkeley, if you're listening to the sound of our voice, San Rafael, and others. And, uh, you know, I, I love seeing this because I think the one night only, is it's, it's an event uh, opportunity for people who want to see a really interesting story about a band. As I said, you may or may not know a lot about Blood, Sweat, and Tears, but I, I can't imagine if you've listened to any radio in the last 40 years that you haven't heard a lot of their songs and you'll know you'll be familiar with them. But let's get to the to the heart of the matter in the film, which is their decision to go on a tour of what at the time was considered to be behind the iron curtain. We're talking Yugoslavia, Romania, Poland. Let's. How did this tour come about? Steve Katz, who is the lead guitarist and sometime vocalist for Blood, Sweat, and Tears, uses a word in our film, which is totally apropos, and that's blackmail. So we're not going to give you all the details, Mike, because right. I want people to come and see the film. <laughs> uh, where it started was that uh, David Clayton Thomas, the lead singer, uh, is Canadian. And due to some political statements he made, the State Department was going to revoke his green card. And so here you have one of the hottest bands going. They couldn't tour or record in the United States with their lead singer. That's a problem. The band was proactive here or whether the State Department showed up. What happened as a result is that there was a quid pro quo uh, between the two. And what happened was, is that if Blood, Sweat and Tears would go on this tour sponsored by the State Department, Cultural Exchange Program Tour, they would make David's immigration problems go away. And that's what happened. So it ended up sort of being a win-win of sorts, so we thought. 
the the band got to keep their lead singer and the state department got to mount a tour into these communist countries with one of the hottest bands going at that time so it was sort of a a, a win-win the band for your some of your younger listeners the iron curtain was a, a sort of a, imaginary line between Eastern and Western Europe, and those uh, east of the line were under the domination of Russia, much like some countries are today. It was unheard of for American Americans in general, but certainly uh, artists, to, to travel behind that line. And Blood, Sweat and Tears was one of the first to do it. And the tour itself was quite successful, except for a, a small riot in Bucharest, Romania. Other than uh, that, that's sort of what started. <laughs> Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you like the play? Um, but that's how it started. Uh, there was some, there was some disagreement in the band as to whether they should go, but they really were blackmailed into going. So here it was. They were going off to save their band, uh, but it also created some issues for them. There you go. That, let's leave it there because, again, you know, it's a film where uh, it, it, it as as you get to know the band, as you see how they progress as a band and their and their careers in music all of these things there are these remarkable circumstances that kind of follow them around throughout this story and uh, yes. not the least of which is is uh, their their trip to the uh to the eastern bloc were you a fan of of blood sweat and tears before you started this i was i had been introduced to them in high school and I just thought, wow, this is such a great sound. I love this. And became a fan. When Bobby Columbi, who was the original drummer uh, and became the leader of the band after Al left, he called me about two months before COVID hit. He uh, said, I have a story I want to tell you. I didn't know Bobby and we'd met, but didn't really know him. And so we went to lunch and we were sort of talking about how much I had been a fan of the band. But I said to him, what the hell happened to Blood, Sweat, and Tears? Here you were, the hottest thing going, and then suddenly you weren't. And he said, that's the story I'm going to tell you. And, and that's the story, Mike, that we tell in this film. But I was a fan, and I think had I not been, I still would have been fascinated by this story. Yeah. You don't have to be a fan of the band. You don't even have to know the band yeah. to find a story of innocent guys who got caught up in political intrigue, not of their own making, and it had a, a, a real significant impact on them. That, yeah. to me, is, is just the stuff of great movies. I mean, Hitchcock made a career of making movies like that of innocent people caught up in, uh, in intrigue circumstances, intriguing circumstances. And so that's what really interested me here. Uh, it did help that I was a fan of the band. But again, this is really more of a political thriller as a film than it is a rock documentary. Well, and there's a whole section in the film that I did not remember or know about, but the fact that Richard Nixon, in one of the first, I believe it's it's in the film, I believe it said that the first trip by U.S. president behind the Iron Curtain was to Romania. That's right. Nixon was elected in November of 68 and, and was sworn in uh, in, in January of 69. And uh, just a handful of months later, he became the first American president to reach out to a communist country to try to establish a relationship. And I think what came from that was policy in, in the administration and the State Department was let's do what we can to establish a relationship with this country because it may help kind of pull them away a little bit 
from Russian domination. One of the things we discovered making this film, how many rock bands can you say somehow their uh, intrigue ended up on the desk of the president of the United States? We, we discovered, and even the band didn't know this. We had discovered that somehow K- uh, Henry Kissinger, who was the national security advisor, who later became uh, secretary of state, he was so fascinated by what had happened when Blood, Sweat and Tears came back to America after this tour that he wrote a memo to the president and the president paid attention and wrote some stuff on the bottom of it of how uh, this might be used to their advantage. So the fact that this tour that this band went on reached the desk of the most powerful person in the world at that time is absolutely fascinating to me. But there was a lot more, Mike. We did, we discovered a lot of documents in addition to uh, that Kissinger memo and, and the Nixon response that showed us what was going on uh, behind the scenes, both in Washington and in Yugoslavia, Romania, and Poland while this tour was going on. We found internal communications, letters, memos, telegrams. So we were able really to pull together a, a, a very clear idea of what was going on that made this story even that much more interesting uh, for us, including, and I'm not going to give you or your uh, listeners any details, but um, they had to, the the film crew had to uh, smuggle film the shot uh, during the concerts in Bucharest. They had to smuggle that film out of Romania so the Romanians wouldn't confiscate and burn it. There's so many remarkable elements in the film. The, the idea of film getting out from behind the Iron Curtain was considered you know, an exceptionally taboo thing to happen because they didn't want the world to know what was going on. Very much so. Uh, Czechoslovakia um, had, had tried to liberalize itself and become much more open, uh, not only to, to the Western countries, but also to its own citizens. And the Russians uh, ultimately couldn't handle that wanted more control. And so you saw this, these film clips in our film about Russian tanks rolling into Prague uh, in Czechoslovakia to reinstall themselves in control. And we couldn't help but sit in our editing room and look at that and think of Russian tanks rolling into Ukraine. So that's just uh, what, you, what you raised there is, is just one of many parallels between Uh, what's happening in our world now and what was going on in the world uh, back in 1970. Absolutely. It's a a primer on that era, the Cold War, rock music, the reaction of the counterculture to all of this. There's a a whole bunch of really fascinating stuff about uh, how they were perceived. Uh, Just a remarkable documentary film called What the Hell Happened to Blood, Sweat and Tears?, uh, we've been speaking with the award-winning filmmaker, John Scheinfeld. The uh, other films that he's done that you should see are U.S. versus John Lennon, Chasing Train, Who is Harry Nielsen? And you were also on for the uh, wonderful documentary film about Herb Albert. And uh, so, so thankful for your time and for your work, John. Thank you so very much for being here on Film School Radio. Thank you, Mike. Uh, I'm glad you had me. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.